This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I shall tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Join me in a word of prayer. Well, Father, as we now come to a conclusion of this great chapter in your word, I am reminded that this moment is the most important time in our day. Certainly, when we hear your word read to us, we are hearing the eternal, transcendent God come into this place in space and time and speak to us. Lord, we are bombarded by thousands of voices. Every hour even, we are being distracted by different thoughts, different ideas, different philosophies. And so, Lord, when we come into the gathering of the saints on Sunday, sometimes our brains are so filled and distracted that it's easy for us to remain distracted when you speak to us. Lord, I want to pray this morning that as we look into this word, this perfect law of liberty, I pray, God, that you would use this text to stir up in us something of the effect that the Ninevites experienced. Just as they heard your word spoken to them, I pray that today, Lord, we would receive your word and that it would transform us, that it would change us, that it would, it would bring conviction, that it would bring hope to us, that it would bring mercy to us. Lord, I'm asking you to do what we cannot do, and that is learn the things of God. That is the spirit of God's work. And so, Lord, do that in us, I pray, as we behold your word together. Do this for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
The church's history over the last 2,000 years or so has been punctuated by periods of what we might call spiritual awakening or revival. Revival is a term that has been used since roughly the 1740s in America during the first great awakening, uh, also in England, of course. And one particular spiritual awakening, one particular revival took place in Northern Ireland in the 1850s. A few new converts had begun meeting for prayer and for Bible study. Slowly these meetings uh, grew and multiplied, and the effect of these meetings uh, began to be felt among the populace. Christy, you can get rid of that slide just for now. Thank you. One day, a a school-aged boy was sitting in his class, and he began to feel uh, the weight or the effect and the conviction of his sin as he sat there. And he was so stirred and he was so moved by his sins against God that he was, get this, unable to continue with his studies. His teacher took note of this and so kindly said to the boy that he could go home if he wanted to, and he, he found a, another uh, boy in the class who was already a Christian, and he sent them home together, hoping that the boy would be an encouragement to him. On the way, the boys never ended up getting back to the house. They actually stopped, and they prayed to gr- together. And as they prayed, the unhappy boy at last began to feel a wash come over his body, the the wash of peace, a sense of peace come over his body. And instead of going home, the young man decided to go back to the classroom. And he bursts into the classroom, and I won't do an Irish accent because I can't do it, but he said to his teacher, I'm so happy I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. This simple testimony began to have an impact on the class which soon found itself in prayer. And before long, soon enough, the other classrooms began to join in. And before long, the entire school found itself in prayer. And the neighbors began to hear what was going on. And the the teachers and the parents all joined in. And they were there at the school till late at night in, in prayer. Within a few days, open-air meetings were organized in the area to hear the testimony of the new converts. Thousands from neighboring villages gathered to listen, but the crowds were so large that they were divided up into groups led by various ministers from the area who began to preach to the crowds, and the response was overwhelming. There are reports of people who stood motionless for hours with tears streaming down their face. Others fell down on their face, fell to the ground, crying out under the weight of their sin, and the ministers were were absolutely dumbfounded. This continued on for weeks, and it turned into months. And the word spread, and many lives were changed. And by the end of the year, 1859, it's estimated that 100,000 Irish men, women, boys, and girls had come to saving faith in Jesus. The impact was so great that it had not been seen in that area since the days of St. Patrick, 1,400 years 
earlier. In fact, some historians believe that the revival of 1859 is the reason why Northern Ireland today is more biblically faithful than the rest of the UK and Europe. Friends, again, history is dotted with these unusual movements of God among people, and the effect is often a renewed zeal in the church, a a widespread conversion that happens among unbelievers. Revival often begins in an individual, and it impacts thousands. What we've read in Jonah 3 is just another example of just such a move, And, and to think all from a single sentence uttered by the prophet Jonah. Just as that Irish schoolboy's single sentence led to a widespread move of God and the conversion of many. Now, loved ones, I, I, I ask you to judge for yourselves. But I believe that the modern church is ripe and in such a condition for revival. If we're honest, so often like the ancient Israelites who Jonah we saw represented, we can be so unmoved by the preaching of God's word. We can be so unstirred by the amazing news that the gospel is. We can can be so apathetic as followers of Jesus. And I just want you to hear me say, I am the first one to admit that I suffer from this apathy today. Friends, yes, we love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and we share fellowship around him, around God's word, around him as we fellowship together with our our fellow friends and and church members. But, But there's a certain hunger that seems to be lacking, a certain joy that we don't have, a certain fervency that we need, a certain zeal that we don't have. As we read this chapter, it's surprising, isn't it, that these Ninevites, this evil population of 120,000 pagans, become an example to the church of Jesus Christ. What can they teach us about spiritual awakening? What can they teach us about revival? And friends, is this something that we should expect today? And I'll go further. Is this something, friends, that we long for today? Do we long for spiritual awakening in our hearts, in our relationships, in our families, in our children, on our streets, in our neighborhood? at our place of work, in our extended family's homes, in our city, in Wilmington? Do we long for that today? Do we long for God to quicken us today, to quicken this city, to raise up this city, to be a light and a beacon in this dark corner of North Carolina? Do we long for him? If you're 
taking notes this morning, the title of this sermon is When God Awakens a People. I'm going to summarize this text for us in just one sentence, and then we'll spend our time breaking it down for easy digestion. Christy, thank you so much. Now we'll put up that slide. Thank you very much, sister. Here's a summary of Jonah chapter 3. Revival is a sovereign move of God on a people through the Holy Spirit-anointed preaching of the Word that results in changed hearts and lives. Again, as we look at this definition, this description of revival that we see here, we're going to unpack this in Jonah 3. Do we long for this to happen in our own lives? That's the question I'm going to keep before us today. So let's unpack this together. The first part of this, number one, let's look at revival's source. Revival is a sovereign move of God on a people. We see this in verse 2. God calls Jonah a second time and sends him to Nineveh to warn its citizens of God's judgment, which was going to come upon them because of their evil. Now, mind you, the people of Nineveh were not looking for God. In fact, they were far from God. They hated God. They lived lives that mocked God. And Jonah, we know, certainly didn't rise up in chapter 3 with this burst of altruistic compassion toward this enemy of Israel and then go to them of his own initiative. No, from beginning to end, what we see here in chapter 3 is a transformation take place in a wicked city that was the direct fruit of God's own mercy and compassion and initiative toward this city. Now, friends, as always, we must start here with God. You know, for all of our commitment to the Bible, for all of our commitment to the Scriptures, I think there's a tendency in the church of Jesus Christ to believe that moves of God, that moves of the Holy Spirit, that revival is the product of just a few people who are extra hungry for a move of the Holy Spirit. And I will concede that from a human standpoint, history would certainly seem to give evidence to this. We see this in the 1859 revival, the, the little boy or the, or the few new converts that stand out as a sort of first fruits of this spiritual awakening. In the first, second, and third great awakenings in England and America, there were key figures that played important roles in these unusual periods of spiritual awakening. Think the, the Wesleys, think George Whitfield. But friends, we must not confuse the effect with the cause. Just as physical hunger is not an act of the will, it happens when our stomachs are empty, in other words, neither is spiritual hunger a mere act of the will. You see, friends, the thing about revival is that it is a non-normative occurrence in the world, in the church. This is why until Jesus returns, we still have scriptures that must tell us to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because there is within us a continual deficiency of the Holy Spirit's manifest power. Now, don't get me wrong. 
We are continually indwelt by the Holy Spirit by virtue of the new birth, but we are not always filled up with the Holy Spirit. This lack, if we can call it that, can stem from a variety of reasons, can't it? Sometimes there are just, there's just indwelling sin in our lives that we've just not dealt with. And so there's this unseen separation between us and God. Sometimes God just sovereignly, divinely ordains seasons of spiritual dryness. I know there are many of you in this room here today that are feeling spiritually dry. Or the simple fact that we live in a fallen world. These are all reasons why we are not continually filled with the Spirit. And and yes, there are spiritual disciplines that we can train ourselves in to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit. Things like cultivating a heart of gratitude to God and and prayer and scriptural intake and, and Christian fellowship. But friends, again, if we're honest, and see if you see this being true in your own life, Sometimes we can be doing all the right things. We can be doing all the right things, and yet we just feel a sense of God's absence, a divinely ordained season of spiritual dryness. And when that happens, all we can do is what we've always done. Pursue the spiritual disciplines, pray, and wait. Wait for his visit. Pray for a greater measure of the Spirit's power and influence. Pray for a mighty rushing wind to return to us. Friends, this is because revival, whether it be in an individual or in a church or in a city, always starts with the will of God. It's always the fruit of God acting in the world to accomplish his own sovereign purposes. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached a whole lot on revival, says this. This is what is meant by revival. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Revival is always his work. Of course, he uses men, but you must not give praise to men. No matter who they are, whether they be Calvin, Luther, Wesley, Whitfield, or anybody else, it is when he arises with healing in his wings that the enemy is defeated and the church is revived. It is always he and he alone. Revival begins with God. And so here in 8th century BC, Nineveh, what happens? God sets his eyes on a city to do something about their wickedness. Job once said, No purpose of yours can be thwarted, O Lord. Solomon said, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. For reasons unknown to Jonah and to Israel, God purposed to interrupt this people's evil and corruption and their masochistic pursuit of violence and put an end to it. And in his mercy and grace, God chose his reluctant servant to be the mouthpiece, to be his mouthpiece in preparation for this sovereign move of God. Are you hungry for a move of God? 
I don't know if this helps, if this makes it more constricting, or if this is freeing. It's certainly freeing to me. Revival begins with God. Revival begins with God. Not our well-doing, not our faithfulness, not even our own conjured up sense of need. It begins with God. This leads to the second part of our text summary. Revival's agency, number two. Revival is a sovereign move of God on a people through the Holy Spirit anointed preaching of the word. So what do I mean by agency? What is agency? An agent is simply a means by which something is carried out. Now, as we've been seeing, the grace of God, as an example, finds its source in God, but faith is the agent. For by grace you have been saved through the agency of faith. That's how we receive God's grace. And so, in a similar way, revival springs from God's purposes. But it is the means by which his purposes are carried out that we want to focus on here. Here, it is his anointing on his word, spoken through his messenger, that carries this out. We see this in verse 4, don't we? Jonah is making his way through Nineveh. He's, he's calling out. He's, he's warning the city of its impending destruction. But Jonah's just the bullhorn, right? Jonah is the messenger. He's the Holy Spirit's messenger. Jonah is speaking the words, but God will use the words to move on the hearts of the Ninevites. Now, as we've seen, and we're going to see this in chapter 4, as a man, Jonah has some serious character deficiencies. Jonah counts himself and his countrymen to be superior to everyone else. He doesn't listen very well to God's instructions. He's judgmental, he's self-righteous, and he really hates the very people that he's preaching to. But friends, this is the point. This is precisely the point. God loves to call the least likely preachers to speak his word. In the first great awakening in America, most of the preachers that rose to the fore as mouthpieces for God were from the backwoods of America. And every place was backwoods back then. So these were the backwoods, backwoods people. These men, by and large, had little to no education. In England, in the same period, it was not in the big cities where the greatest transformations happened. It was in the backwater places where city folk had never heard of or ever had ever gone to. And guess what? Their preaching wasn't exactly orthodox. Their preaching was not as theologically astute as our preaching today. They didn't have all of their theological I's dotted and then their T's crossed. And the church today would probably have run many of those men out for heresy, for excommunication, for heresy. But God still moved. And God still worked. And many lives were still changed. You see, friends, those men had what so many theologically astute Christians in the modern church today lacks. 
You know what that is? Boldness. Holy Spirit given boldness. They looked and sound like so many of the early church fathers who, as someone said, were poor theologians but excellent for burning. These men and women had a mouth, a trust in their God, a willingness to give up everything for the fame and for the glory of his name in towns and cities where Jesus was as yet not unnamed. God chose Jonah, loved ones, because he loves to use deficient people to advance his kingdom. And he does so in order that when lives are changed, no one will be able to stand up and applaud the messenger. Notice in your Bible that after verse four, up until chapter four, Jonah fades away from the scene. He gives the message and he fades away, and all we see left is God. No man, no messenger can boast in God's presence. They can only boast in the Lord. And friends, throughout the history of the church, it's been the imperfect preaching, touched by the Holy Spirit, and checkered in weak men that have made the greatest impact. This began when Jesus came, the only perfect preacher. And he said in Isaiah, from Isaiah 60, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Then on the day of Pentecost, who stood up filled with the Holy Spirit? It was that traitorous, betraying, backstabbing, foot in the mouth, always first, man by the name of Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, thousands converted. In Antioch, Barnabas was just a deacon, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas in Corinth and Thessalonica, the gospel came not in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he would send his spirit to glorify him. How? By conviction of sin bringing salvation through people who none of us would choose to be our spokesmen. Friends, let this encourage you. Let this bring cheer to your heart as you reflect on your own weakness in evangelism. Let this cheer your heart as you reflect on the many opportunities that you have let go to share of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Let this thrill you when you consider the sin that you struggle with, the besetting sin that has afflicted your life. And yet here you are today, sitting amongst the people of God, singing praises to the only God in the fellowship of the believers, accepted in the beloved, called to good works through nothing you did. Let this thrill your hearts. You see, in times of spiritual awakening, friends, God loves to take his words and breathe on them uniquely. It's only when a fire is actually burning that people get up and run out of the building when someone screams fire. 
And when the Spirit of God is doing deep work in the hearts of people, the Word has an effect on the soul where it would otherwise fall on deaf ears when the status quo remains unchallenged. One such listener of George Whitfield reported of his preaching in the 18th century. They said, His words seemed to cut like a sword. Oh, with what eloquence! Energy and melting tenderness did Mr. Whitfield beseech sinners to be reconciled to God. When the sermon ended, the people seemed chained to the ground. George Whitfield, overweight George Whitfield with a crooked eye and a lisp, is a man who spoke powerful words. Why? Because God was working. speaking truths that uniquely press in on the soul. Why? Because in times of revival, familiar gospel truths are apprehended. The word is received as the very bread of life. Jesus is seen to be just as beautiful as if he had just risen from the dead yesterday. This is what happens, friends, when God awakens a person or a church, or a city through Holy Spirit-anointed preaching. But what's the effect of such preaching? For this answer, we move to our third and final point, revival's result. This move of God results in changed hearts and lives. In verse 5, in Jonah 3, the author gives us an overview of the verses that follow, which is 6 through 9. It is a common technique in ancient Hebrew literature to, to state a fact and then to elaborate on it afterward. We see that here. So what's going on here? Well, at Jonah's spirit-anointed preaching, reluctant Jonah, all of the people, the Bible says, responded with mourning, with contrition, from the greatest to the least, starting with the king, working its way down even to the animals. This response is about as comprehensive as one could imagine. This city was brought to its knees by the preached word. By decree, all the people and every beast were to fast all food and water and put on sackcloth. Even the king was indistinguishable from the common man because he took off his robe and he sat in ashes. In the Old Testament, to put on sackcloth and ashes uh, was a, and, to, and to engage in fasting was a, was a cultural practice that signified inner shame or mourning. It could be a sign of intense grief. It could mean that people were humbling themselves before God in repentance from sin. We see both of those things happening here. We see both grief and repentance. And there is a widespread appeal to God's mercy. The people feel the weight of their wickedness. And they beg God to please withhold judgment that he threatens. Friends, notice that the Ninevites are not casual about God's justice. Like so many today, 
there are people walking around here today thinking, I can live however I want. It doesn't affect anybody but myself. And I can just ask God to forgive me later. You don't see that in Nineveh. No, this is genuine conviction of sin. They don't presume upon God's patience and willingness to forgive like we do here in modern America. I can't tell you how many people I have heard say, that's good for you, I'm so happy, that's your truth. And I can't tell you how many of those people have said, when I come to the end, I'll ask God to forgive me then. I'm gonna live how I want now. Friends, that's spoken by people who assume that God's going to somehow visit them at the end. Salvation is of the Lord, correct? You don't see that in Nineveh. Look at verse 9. They say, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. Sinclair Ferguson speaking on this verse says this, the Ninevites grasped something about Jonah's God even when the message appeared to be one of unmitigated gloom. He was a God who might have mercy. Trusting in his gracious character, they pled with God that he might be merciful to them. They hoped he might be a God of love as well as a God of holiness. Loved ones, this is the effect. This is the effect of a a divine spiritual awakening on a people. It's the unconditional fear of the Lord. You see that here. It's an immensely deep reference. It's a pause. It is speech and petition that's not driven by what someone expects God to give. No, it's it's a plea for mercy. It doesn't try to bargain with God. If you forgive me, then I'll change. No, there's no bargaining in these Ninevites. They recognize they don't deserve even one ounce of his goodness. They deserve his justice. So out of a holy fear, they turn away from their evil. You see, friends, in periods of revival, God works repentance, not just remorse, over sin in the hearts of people. Listen, there is a great difference between repentance and remorse. Now listen, this may be the most important thing you hear today. There is a great difference between repentance and remorse. Remorse is a feeling of sorrow over one's behavior It's kicking yourself. That was a stupid thing to do. Now look at the mess I'm in. 
But usually when someone just has a worldly sorrow, that type of remorse, they can usually get rid of it by a change of scenery or a good night's sleep or replacing a bad deed with a good deed. Remorse, friends, regret does not indicate a changed heart. Just because we feel sorry over something we've done does not mean that repentance is at work. Repentance goes far deeper. It's, it's not just a realization that you're not what you ought to be. No, it's a hatred for your sin. It sees my sin in the way that God sees my sin, an abomination to him. This is what the prodigal son experienced, wasn't it? First he sat there and he looked around as he sat with all the pigs and he was eating the pods and he felt remorse. He says, oh, what a fool I've been. But then what happens next? He goes and he thinks about his father. He says, oh, what my father must have felt when I ran away from home. I, I, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go. I'm going to tell him that I've, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against him and that I'm no, worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me your slave. That is repentance. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Remorse leads to death, friends. Repentance leads to life. Repentance leads to a clearing of oneself, a fear of the Lord, a, a longing, a zeal, a hatred over one's sin. That's what these Ninevites experienced. Now, loved ones, I have a challenge for you. Do we have such a response to the preached word? Before God gives us a single thing with no promise that he will receive us, no expectation, whatever, are we cut to the heart when we come face to face with God's word? Is our sin not something merely to overcome and get rid of but something that we're re repulsed by something that we see was against our father who we ran from our, our father who, who, who opens his arms to those who come back to him who, who, who wants to receive us back but we don't assume he will all we can do is fling ourselves on his, his mercy too many today perhaps even some here today, walk around with a worldly sorrow that they've told themselves is repentance. But it's little more than remorse or regret. They feel badly about their condition. They've convinced themselves that they're okay in the sight of God. And so what happens is, is they go on living for themselves with reckless living and with drunkenness or pornography or casual sex. And meanwhile, 
disaster is coming. Disaster is coming. I can remember a time in my own life when I needed to be visited by the Word and the Spirit. And newsflash, I do right now, still. But I can remember this particular time when I was newly married and I had begun attending church regularly with my bride roughly 18 years ago, began listening to the faithful preaching of the Word and like the Ninevites, the Holy Spirit began to convict me of my own sin. You see, I had been living in a way, I I had claimed that I was a Christian. But I began to see that my lifestyle was actually an insult to God. I saw that I was making Jesus a way for me to check a religious box, but he was not my Lord. And his Holy Spirit began to show me that Jesus did not die so that I could be a casual Christian who does religious things so I can feel better about myself after I've committed some sin. I saw that Jesus was the only purely God-man who is holy and literally had to give himself to extreme torture and death for the sins that I was excusing and giving a pass. I saw that only by faith in that sacrifice could I ever live a life that was pleasing to God. And it didn't happen quite like in Nineveh, but over the next few years... I can think of multiple moments lying prostrate on the floor, pleading with God for mercy. But guess what? It was the faithful preaching that I was sitting under that helped me to see that because God is a God of holiness, that this is how he can be a God of love and mercy. Verse 10, of course, says that the Ninevites turned from their evil way. And God relented of the disaster that he said he would do. Of course, this does not mean that God was somehow surprised by their change of mind and therefore he changed his mind. It simply means that he carried out what he planned to do all along after the Ninevites repented. And in the course of one day, through the agency of one faithful sentence spoken by a weak man with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, a whole society was changed. This is what happens when God awakens a people. Friends, in revival, people don't need to be preached at to go out and love their neighbor and to forsake gossip and slander and to give generously and to love their families and their wives and their children and to evangelize the lost. When God awakens a people, his love, his boldness pours out of that people. Loved ones, I'm I'm closing. And there's a lot of ways that I could have preached this text. But I believe that the Lord wants us to think about Nineveh's spiritual awakening so that he might instill in us a hunger for our own and for our church, and for our city. 
Now, this is a moment for honesty. It's a moment to be honest with yourself in your heart before the Lord. Are you hungry for a move of God? If you don't know how to answer that, are you satisfied by your present condition? Are you content with the status quo? When we read this account or the various accounts of conversion in the New Testament, how does those accounts compare with my own life, with my church, with my family, with my city? Can we say with Peter, like he said in 1 Peter 1, that we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Can we say with Paul, I have not attained, I have not been perfected, but I press on to know him, to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, to know him in the power of his resurrection? Do we see in the modern church, in our cities, in this world, a turning like the Ninevites? Or loved ones, are we more like the Laodicean church in Revelation 3? That was neither cold nor hot, claiming to need nothing, but not realizing that she was wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Are you hungry today? You know, the first step to revival is realizing our need. And even this realization is a work of the Spirit. And I I trust that the Spirit is, is working in this place to bring us to a place not of remorse, but of repentance and faith again in the blood that was shed for us. To bring us to a place of repentance for our spiritual apathy our casual Christianity, our dualistic life that so many live between Saturday night and Sunday morning. Family, revival is a sovereign move of God on a people. But you know what? He is a God who is merciful and loves to bless us far more than we could ever ask him for. We see that in this city was not asking for God to come visit with them. And yet he came. He visited. Do we long for spiritual awakening? For revival? And let's close by praying together and asking God this strange request. Lord, strip us of our self-sufficiency. The churches of old would pray, God, bend us and break us. Bend us and break us. Strip away all false gods, all false sources of hope, all places we look to for sufficiency and satisfaction. Strip us of our self-sufficiency. Amen.